We have been studying this, uh, the, the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches that are in the book of Revelation. And we've been going through that. And in each, in each letter, there has been quite a challenge for each of that church. You, you remember that some of these churches have, they received lots of commendation. And then, and, and then maybe afterwards there would be some, uh, you know, something for them to work on or something to fix. Or, or maybe it was vice versa. Maybe it would be something to fix and then they'd receive some commendation. And then uh, there were times when there was just great stories that were involved and much, much learning has taken place from the letters here to these seven churches. And uh, today we're going to study the last of these letters. It's a letter to the church in Laodicea. And as much as there has been interesting uh, story and interesting historical facts and notes uh, and teachings in the last six letters, there is as well today. This letter packs quite a punch. And this letter is actually probably the most well-known of all the letters that we've studied so far. So as we read through this letter to Laodicea, you'll probably come to points where if you've been around church a little bit, you'll say, I've I've heard that. I remember that. That's familiar to me. And yet, as I've read it several times, and when I was studying this week, just diving into the history of this church and some of the things that were taking place there, it brought a whole new light to the way that I understood this scripture, and I I hope that it does the same for you this morning. So however many times you read it, I hope it packs a new punch for you today. As I was reading and studying about it, Um, I kept on having stories from the life of King David kind of spring into mind. And so I thought, why wouldn't we just go ahead and illustrate this letter to Laodicea with some of the the instances, some of the happenings from the life of King David. And so uh, so you'll kind of see as we go through how that happens. And maybe the first thing, the first kind of commonality that there is between these two churches is that they both ascended to power from great humility. And I know that uh, Laura is back there. She's diligently looking and and taking role as well. But that's our first point. (laughs) Sorry, babe. They, they each ascended from great humility. And, uh, and you'll see how that takes place. Uh, we're going to read um, from this book. I want you to make sure you catch on this. So would you stand, actually, and we're going to read from Revelation chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Verses 14 to 22. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screen, and you can check it there as well. But allow me to just read this for you. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Good, and you can be seated. So we're going to be studying the life of King David and this letter to Laodicea kind of simultaneously, side by side. And again, it's the, the first point here is that they each ascended to power from great humility. And I'll tell you a little bit of the background of, of how this happened. Um, at about 255 B.C., before the Romans had come in and conquered this area of Asia Minor, there was this tiny little budding city that was in this region um, called Laodicea. And uh, it, was, it was just such a small town filled kind of with, with misfits and, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it, was, it was hardly a town that was worth a mention. There wasn't much to it. It was kind of off the beaten path. And, and one of the reasons for that is because it was, a, it was an extremely unlikely place for there to be a city in the first place. This location didn't have a water source. And that will be of specific importance later on as we learn more about this. But they had to bring in their water from different areas. The nearest towns were, uh, were about eight miles away to the north and about five miles away to the southeast. And so they had to, to bring water there. And so it wasn't at all as though someone decided, hey, we're going to go to this place, call it Laodicea, and make a huge metropolis there. No, they just kind of found that that was a place where they could get by, and so they did. And so it became a city, you might say, almost by accident, because later on, um, at about 80 B.C., when the Romans came in and they, and they conquered this area and they took control of Asia Minor, the Romans were fantastic for making roads. All over their empire, roads were, were just were springing up. And you've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome, right? And I'm sure that was mostly the case. And, and yet here, um, you'll, see, uh, you'll see kind of how this took place. It, I think I have that map. Let's, let's throw that up. There you see this area, um, a, a particular part of Asia Minor. Over here to the left is the Aegean Sea. And then down here, um, kind of on the bottom, is the Mediterranean Sea. And you see some of the cities that we've talked about. You've got Ephesus there. Philadelphia, Sardis, and so forth. And you see Laodicea, right there, kind of sandwiched underneath Hierapolis and above Colossae. And now those were the two cities that they shipped in water from. More on this in just a moment. Let's turn real quickly to the story of David. All right, King David, um, who wasn't at this time yet king. If you remember, going back to the book of 1 Samuel, Saul was the first king of the Jewish people. They had been taken out of, um, of Egypt, where they were slaves, and they came into the promised land and eventually occupied that land. 
and, and Saul became their king. But Saul had begun to fall sort of out of the graces of God. He kind of turned his back on God, did some disobedience, and, and, and God said, you've fallen out of favor with me, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a new king. I'm going to anoint a new king. And God goes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And from among the, house of, from among the sons of Jesse, I'm going to tell you who I want the next king to be. So Samuel, he goes over to the house of Jesse, right? And, and, and Jesse almost, it's like he parades his sons before Saul. And so the first one comes in, and it's the oldest, and he's, he's big, and he looks the part of a king. And he comes in strong, and, and, and Jesse thinks, I mean, Samuel thinks, surely this is the guy for the job. Here's our man. And God says, nope, not the guy. I'm not looking for somebody who looks the part. I'm looking for somebody who's got it on the inside. And so that's, that's what takes place here. And, and the next five sons come by, and each one of them, Samuel, nope, not the one. And he's waiting for a word from God to say, this is going to be the guy for the throne. And yet all his sons come by, and none of them, none of them is the one. And Samuel says to Jesse, he says, is this, is this all your sons? And Jesse says, well, there is one more. He's the youngest. Certainly he's not the right guy. In fact, we were so certain that he wasn't the right guy that we didn't even bring him in. He's still out there taking care of the sheep. I love the word that he uses here when it says that he's the youngest. In Hebrew, the word is hakaton. And it literally means, like, he's the runt. It's kind of a slang term for, like, he's the runt. You know, he's just out there uh, guarding the sheep. We didn't even bother to bring him in because, for sure, not the guy. And so they bring him in. And sure enough, Samuel receives word that David, this young, scrawny shepherd, who I'm sure came in, you know, wearing just shepherd's clothes, he's probably had dirt on his face, scrawny and thin, and comes in and that's our guy. Sort of, sort of out of nowhere, out of nothing. And you can, you can continue to follow the story and the, and the life of King David because just shortly after that, um, the, the Israelite nation, they go off to war against the Philistines. And David is, he's too young to even go fight in the battle. And so he stays home with Jesse and all his brothers, they're there fighting at this, at this war. And so he, he comes out and he says, or, or Jesse comes to David and he says, I want you to go and take food to your brothers. And so he goes there and, and David arrives there and, and there's a break in the action. There's no fighting going on. And David asks, what's going on? And they say, well, the Philistines have this huge giant. Nobody wants to fight against the giant Goliath. You guys know this story. You're, you're all familiar with this. And David says, I'll fight him. <laughs> and I don't know what's going through the, the, the Jewish people's mind there when they actually decide to let David fight him, right? This itty-bitty guy, I'll fight him. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and so they dress him up, right, in all of in all of King Saul's armor. And I can just imagine him, like, you know, being like Wilson, 
We'll just stand up real quick. I told Wilson that he kind of reminded me of what I imagined King David looking like at this time. <laughs> um, now that I've already called him scrawny and stuff like that, you're going to grow. You're gonna, you'll be great. Um, you, you can sit. I, I imagine like Wilson, uh, imagine Wilson being in like, like an NFL football player's equipment, right? Yeah, there he is. He's acting it out for us. Like it'd be heavy and the whole thing. And, <laughs> you're, a, you're a wonderful King David. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Round of applause. That was totally impromptu. I'm so proud of you, man. Um, yeah, and so he's there in this armor, and he's just like, I can't, do, I can't wear this stuff, right? And so he takes it all back off, and he goes out to face Goliath with nothing but a sling and a stone, and <laughs> nails him, right? And so the story goes, and from that point... King David's fame just exploded in Israel. He became so well-known and so popular. And, it, and, and they began, like as he got older, old enough for, for some more responsibility, King Saul even began to put him in charge of some roles and, and doing some things. But his, his popularity continued even more to the point where eventually King Saul actually was jealous of David. But you can sort of see from the story, out of nowhere, King David rose to power. He was a shepherd boy. He, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time and with the right tools. And the same is the case for the city of Laodicea. You see right through Laodicea there are two roads that go there. One of them was a very old road that went down from Sardis and Philadelphia, and it went down to the bottom in the corner there, that city of Italia, which was a port city to the Mediterranean that allowed them to do trade out with the islands that were in the Mediterranean Sea and all the way over into Greece and so forth. And so that was an extremely important road for the Philadelphians and so forth because they would, that was their form of doing trade, and they traveled that a lot. And for, for a long time, Colossae was the made was the main kind of stop town along that way to pick up more supplies and, and so forth. However, at about 80 BC, no, yeah, 80 BC, about 150 years before this letter was written to the Laodiceans, they, the Romans made this road that went between Ephesus and Miletus there. They made this road that went to the east. And that was a road that was coming from the Aegean Sea and extended all the way into the east so that they could do trade all the way from the Aegean Sea to the, the countries in Asia. And that became just a very important road for their commerce and for their expansion and so forth. And you can see that it just so happens that those two roads crossed right there at Laodicea. They were in the right place at the right time, had the right tools. What they did there was they began to, because there was so much commerce going on, they, they began to learn how to bank. And banking became their main source of income. And so they did the banking for all the people that would cross through there. And they also, um, they became uh, well known uh, for, uh, because they had a medical school right there in that region. You see it's part of Phrygia, and, uh, and, and that region um, 
developed a kind of powder known as Phrygian powder that they would pound into a powder and then they would uh, add water and stuff and it made a paste and you would put it on your eyes and it was supposed to have a healing um, effect on your eyes if your eyes were going bad. And so uh, another just, uh, just kind of an interesting note about um, Laodicea is that it developed this medical school that was really well known throughout the Roman Empire. And, and another thing that they became famous for was for their textiles. They could make fine cloths. They were known as some of the most uh, well-dressed people in all of the Roman Empire. They were in the right place at the right time, and they rose into, into great power and great wealth. It's said, actually, that they were one of the top 20 most wealthiest nations in all of the Roman Empire. And that's really saying something. I mean, you can think of lots of cities as, as Rome expanded all the way up into like the, the, the areas of Spain and way into Greece. And, you know, just there's famous cities and lots of them. And it was one of the top 20 wealthiest and most powerful was Laodicea. In the year 60, this is A.D. now, um, there was a huge earthquake and, uh, and the entire city was destroyed. And King Nero, or Emperor Nero at the time, he said to Laodicea, because it was such an important town, he said, I will send you money so that you can rebuild this city because it's so important to our empire. And the Laodiceans said, we don't need your money. We have everything that it takes right here to be able to rebuild our city on our own. And I think that, you know, what a, what a statement that makes to the, to the wealth, to the power that they had, and maybe even almost to the arrogance that they had. They were so self-assured that with their city in ruin, they refused a financial gift from the emperor. That took guts. And at that point, uh, you start to see some things. I mean, it's, it's, it's little wonder, I think, that they had such a great sense of self-sufficiency. I mean, after all, they had built their city from the ground up, right? They, uh, that even when, when destruction hit, they were able to regroup, and at each turn along the way, they were savvy and intelligent, and they made smart decisions, and their city grew and became powerful. It's no surprise that they began to feel sort of an air of self-sufficiency. And that's, that's the next commonality that we see that Laodicea had with King David, is that they each developed this air of self-sufficiency. Young David, right, as, as a kid, he knew what he was capable of. He had been out, um, you know, shepherding the sheep, and sometimes lions and bears would come, and, and he would use his sling to strike those down. So he, he had a confidence when he faced Goliath that he knew what he could do. And when they tried to put the armor on him, he's like, I don't need this stuff. He was confident about that. And later on, as he, as he grew to power, and, and eventually when he bothered King Saul, King Saul chased him. David actually had to flee and go into the wilderness, and King Saul was pursuing him, wanting to kill him. But all along that way, David made intelligent choices, even respectable choices, righteous choices. At one point, he came across Saul asleep and had just the perfect opportunity to kill Saul and become king on his own. What did he do? He just cut off a little portion of his garment and kept it so that he could show Saul, look, 
at the mercy I had. He was just, he was just a bright kid. He was smart. And, and, and as he became a king, that sort of intelligence and that sort of righteousness carried over into his leadership, at least for a while, in his kingship. But as time went on, David grew rather comfortable in his palace. There was no more wilderness that he had to deal with. No more hours on end of being out with the shepherd with nothing to do besides just worship God and give devotion in that way. There were no bears to slay, no lions attacking him, no more Goliaths to knock down. Everything in his kingdom was going fine. He knew where he was going to get his next meal. In fact, it was going to be a lavish meal. He was quite comfortable in his palace. There was no longer anything that was forcing him to pursue God like he needed to in those younger years. And he grew complacent. It's no wonder that this sense of self-sufficiency began to set in on King David. And we can't blame him, right? We can't blame him. We've all had, we've all had that. When things are going well in our lives and we kind of look back and go, yeah, I did this, right? Or, or we've had that, those times where, where we're just proud of something. And, and don't get me wrong, there, there's a time to be proud of something. We've got this little baby over here. He, that's great, be proud of that child, Caleb. And yet at the same time, we all, we need to give credit where credit is due, right? And, and talk to Doug and Maria, and, and they'll tell you, Man, this is an act of God that this child is okay and that everything is okay. Mom's okay. Yeah, and we need to remember to give credit where, where, where credit is due. I mean, the reality is that who of us even takes another breath without God giving it the thumbs up, right? Such a little thing like taking a breath much less starting a business or graduating from college or from high school or raising a child, right? These are serious deeds. And yet, you know, we can't blame David. We've all, we've all been there. It's almost, well, it's that, that kind of, you know, like I said, a little bit of pride is okay. You know, we can be proud of an accomplishment, but that's different than what David was experiencing here. And it's different from what Laodicea was experiencing here. What you might say what was going on with these guys is a full-fledged level of pridefulness. Complete self-sufficiency. It's almost as though they were now believing, they were saying, okay, God, you, you got to start it. You can see King David here. Awesome. I, you know, thanks. I appreciate you. I may have needed you to kind of get me on my feet, but now I got this. The I got this attitude. Things are going smooth. I'm going to take this on my, on my own for a while. I'll drive. Right? There's, uh, some of you have seen that there, there's a movie coming out, Night and Day, or maybe it's even already out. I think it is. Uh, you might have seen the, the trailer for it. At one part, there's a place where Cameron Diaz's character, she... Uh, looks up and she's tied to a chair and she's looking into a mirror and in that mirror she can see behind her Tom Cruise's character who is also tied up hanging upside down swaying back and forth and as he passes through the mirror he lets her know 
I know this looks bad. But don't worry. I'll get you out of here in a second. I got this. <laughs> that I got this attitude. And I know that you know, we're going to go watch the movie, and he's, he is somehow going to get out of that situation, right? But it never, nevertheless, it reflects that attitude that, that we all come across in our lives. You got me this far, but I'll take it from here. I can do this. The I got this attitude. In 2 Samuel 11, there's an interesting little verse where it says, In the spring, when kings go off to war, and then it says, David sent Joab. It was the springtime. It was the time. It was very common. This was the time when kings would take their armies and they would go off and they would conquer foreign lands and so forth. And that was where David was supposed to be, off with his armies battling. And yet it says, in that time, David stayed home. He was in a place where he wasn't supposed to be, and he sent Joab to go with his armies. He stayed home in his palace where it was nice, comfortable, the temperature was cozy. He went up on his balcony and he discovered a great view, right? Some of you are giggling, you know what happened. I'll tell you the story a little bit. David had grown so complacent, so comfortable in where he was at in life that he began, little, just, with a, just a little bit, he began to turn from God and to focus on other things. What he did in his complacency is that he went out and on his balcony and he looked and he could see in the distance a girl bathing. And he was filled with lust. And he takes the next step. He says, go and have her brought here. Right? And, and then he takes the next step. He has an affair with her. And, and things begin to unravel as in his complacency he turns from what is right and what, is, what he has been doing and what he should be doing. And he turns away saying, I got this. I'm going to do what I want. And he makes these mistakes, and very quickly, things fall apart for him. Pretty soon, Bathsheba is pregnant, and he's in a problem because that, that looks bad on him. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. Go and send for Uriah the Hittite, who was Bathsheba's husband, and bring him back from the battle. That's the other thing is, David should have been off at war with his people, and yet he wasn't. He was in his palace, and Uriah... One of his subjects was off about. He says, bring him back. Have him spend a couple nights here. And then it will look like he was with his wife and he got her pregnant. And then we'll all be good, right? But Uriah was a righteous man. He says, I'm, if, if my buddies are out there fighting the battle, I'm not even going to go into my home. And he sleeps at his doorstep, right? And so it, it, it just doesn't work for King David. So ultimately, it unravels some more. And King David says, go and send Uriah um, back to, to the battlefield and put him on the front lines. And then when the battle's the fiercest, draw back and leave him out there and he'll be struck down. And then I can take Bathsheba as my wife. What a tragedy. This guy who had so many things going in the right direction. He had grown so comfortable in his complacency, that from the splendor of his 
palace. And from that majesty, he turned his back on the one that he used to worship for hours when he was in the wilderness and was just a simple shepherd. This isn't, what I'm going to say right now is a side note. It's not really a, a part of this sermon. What this sermon is mostly about is not having this sense of self-sufficiency. But I, w- I do want to throw in this note right now that's, that just is, there are so many times in Scripture where we are giving these, these warnings against affluence. I just want to remind you of that today. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our comfort, in our commodities, in the things that we want, and the things that we're even capable of buying. It's such a danger because it grabs our focus and we get focus off where it should be. And here we are then with the church in Laodicea who is also very comfortable, not a care in the world. They were self-sufficient, So they thought. But the terrible thing was that their level of comfort had made their faith totally ineffective. Take a look once again at verses 14 through 16. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It's, it's an interesting uh, part there. Um, and I think a, a lot of people have, uh, have read this and, and, and started to think that it has very much to do with like how we worship, you know, the passion that's pulsing in our veins. Like, you know, when the, when the music's playing or something like that, the people that are hot, they're the ones that are like this, and they're, you know, they got their eyes closed and their hands up and they're lifting. And, and you know, like, I'm, I, that's kind of my personality, so I'm, I'm down with that, although I think it's probably a mistaken interpretation. There have been people that I've known that, that worship with their hands in their pockets, you know, very, very just subtle and serious, and yet they have a very passionate relationship with God. And I think it goes beyond this. I mean, uh, it has very much to do with, with their neighboring cities. Um, I'll just quickly put that map up one more time. Um, as I'll point this out. Again, you can see Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the south. Uh, we, we have tended to think that what, what Jesus is saying here about hot was good and cold was bad. But I think that's a mistake, and, and you'll, you'll see why. Hierapolis was famous, actually, for having hot springs at their city. And these were mineral-filled hot springs. And they were known to have healing agents in the water. And that was one of the cities that Laodicea would bring water in from. The Romans eventually built these aqueducts. And so the, the water from Hierapolis would travel five miles south to Laodicea, And that was one of their sources of water, because remember, they had no source of water. Colossae, on the other hand, was famous for its cold springs. Gushing out of the water, they had this wonderful, refreshing, cold water. And so the Laodiceans also piped that water north uh, for about eight miles. 
You can imagine what happens with hot water when it's traveling on an aqueduct for eight miles or five miles, right? It gets just, just warm. It's no, longer, it's no longer hot. It's just warm. And you can imagine what happens with cold water when it's traveling in an aqueduct for eight miles. By the time it reaches the destination, it's no longer cold. It's just kind of lukewarm. Historians have said, and you can read about it, that, that the water in Laodicea was, you could live on it. You know, it would, it would uh, keep you hydrated and you could cook with it. But it wasn't, it wouldn't quench your thirst. It was really, it was actually kind of unpleasant to drink. And so you, you can think about this. Seldom, seldom really, right, do we ever want lukewarm anything. How many of you woke up this morning and in your grogginess thought, man, I could sure go for a lukewarm cup of coffee. No, no one says that, right? Or how many of you on a hot day have ever thought, you know what sounds awesome right now? A room temperature Coke. Mmm. One day, uh, last year during football season, I had been in the L.A. area, and I drove, I drove all the way back from the L.A. area to, to get to football practice on time. Uh, I'm a football coach at San Marcos High School, and uh, I drove back, and uh, on my drive back, I had a meal, because I was kind of in a hurry, you know, so I scarfed down my meal, and I didn't drink all of my Coke. And so I, I arrived to, to football practice, and I parked the car, and I rushed up to, to practice, and in the meanwhile, that Coke sat there in my hot car on this hot day for three and a half to four hours while I was at practice, right? Now, practice concludes, and I come back down, and I get into my car, and I'm thirsty. And you can imagine, like, the, the little, like, mental battle that's going on in my mind, right? I look down. That can't be good. But I'm so thirsty. Oh, that's going to be gross. But eventually my thirst went out, and I picked it up, and I took a suck on that straw, and immediately I was just grossed out totally. And I had to open my door and, like, and spit it out. It was disgusting. And I got this very vivid lesson that day on what, on what this passage means. You see, hot water is good for something. You make coffee and tea, or, or even the hot water that they were familiar with, it, had, it was good for healing. They were aware of that. And, the, and then cold water is good for something. The cold water, it's, it's refreshing. It's life-giving. And yet God is saying here, you, you're, you're like lukewarm water to the Laodiceans. You're, you're neither healing nor are you refreshing. Your faith has become useless. It's no longer effective for anything except for causing someone to gag. And that's, that's the reality that it had on God. It made him sick. It made God want to spit them out. Just a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was at uh, the Nazarene Church's District Assembly in Los Angeles, 
And uh, I was giving a seminar about youth in missions, and I was telling them, uh, well, we, we came to this, like, this little question that, that I think is just such a great question. I'll, I'll throw it up here. The question is, does God's church have a mission? Or does God's mission have a church? Right? It's, it's good. You know, all these churches have mission statements, and that's fine. But, but really, I think what, what we're looking for is, is the recognition that God has a mission. And then we take our church and we wrap it around what that mission is. We stand for the things that God stands for. And so it begs the question, what are the things that God stands for? What is God passionate about? And at this seminar, um, they gave us some answers. And I'll, you can just see some of these. And there's probably more, but these are some great answers. Healing, salvation, compassion, justice, peace, love, evangelism, such things as this. But Laodicea had lost sight of those things. They were just lukewarm. You can imagine them sitting in their comfortable church with nice pews, singing great songs maybe, having services that were wonderful, going out feeling good, having all the right beliefs, but having a faith that really had no effectiveness. It was neither healing nor refreshing to the people in need around them. They had lost touch with a true and effective spirituality. I'm reminded of the story of the emperor's new clothes. You familiar with that? Um, the story is a Hans Christian Andersen book, and uh, the idea here is that is his tailors say, we're going to make you a suit made out of cloth that only fools can't see. King says, all right, that's fine with me. And so when his tailors come out and they show him the suit, he can't see it, um, which was really no suit at all, right? And, but he doesn't want to, he can't let on that he can't see it because only fools can't see it, right? And so he says, it's wonderful. And he puts it on. And he goes parading before his people in his new suit that only fools can't see until a child finally points at him and says, but he's not wearing nothing at all. And pretty soon the whole kingdom is laughing at him and he realizes the reality of what he probably maybe even suspected in the beginning, that he's not wearing any clothes at all, and that he's maybe the biggest fool of them all. And there you have the, the emperor in his new clothes. The Laodiceans, dressed in their own self-sufficiency, which was really non-existent, they were parading about until Jesus points out to them that they were indeed naked. Take a look at verse 17 and 18. It says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, poor, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. This, this passage is super ironic. It's very interesting because remember there were three things that I told you that Laodicea was famous for. One of them was for their great wealth, their banking system. This was an extremely wealthy town. Another thing was for their textiles and the cloth that they could make these fine cloths and they were known for being well dressed. And the third one 
was for their medicine school. And in particular, the Phrygian powder, this eye salve that, you, that was for healing people's eyes. And Jesus says, yeah, you've got all those things, but, but look, you are wretched and pitiful. You are poor, blind, and naked. Very opposite of those three things that he'd been telling them about. And he says, you should exchange this wealth that you have for a different kind of wealth. The kind of wealth that 1 Peter talks about in chapter 3. Take a look at this. He says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's the kind of wealth that Jesus tells them they should sacrifice the other wealth and obtain this kind of wealth. And then he says that you should get white clothes. And white clothes was a common metaphor for the forgiveness of sins in that day. And he says, enough with your fancy clothes. Get right with me. And he says, you know, take, take an eye salve. You need some kind of eye medicine that gives you the right kind of vision. A vision that will help you to see that you are not self-sufficient. A kind of eye salve that will help you to recognize your deep spiritual need that you truly are in poverty. And at that point, the ball is in their court. It leads us to the third commonality that I see between King David and Laodicea is that they each had a choice to make. Another prophet comes to David after he has sinned and he says, you've done wrong in the sight of God. And he, and he exposes David for what he's done. And David says, I have sinned against God. And he begins to change things. It took him a long time to recognize that he had lost focus, that he had had this air of self-sufficiency. It took him a long time to realize that. And in the course of those things, he had mistreated people. He had ended up murdering someone. He, had, he ended up losing a son, and then he lost another son as a consequence of all this. He even lost his kingdom for a while. He ultimately regained it, and at, at, towards the end of his life, He's quoted as, as saying some things like this. Take a look at what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 22. He says, and this is, this, again, these are among his dying days. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. Um, that one stops there. And then uh, to, to his son, Solomon. When Solomon is just about to take the throne, just these are, these are King David's last words to his son. He says, Be sure to observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. You can almost hear him saying to Solomon, don't get off track like I did. Observe these ways. Stay on this path. This is the kind of prosperity that will help you. 
He lived a long time. He made his mistakes. And he paid dearly for his, I got this kind of attitude. But he learned the lesson that we all have to learn at some point. That it's better for us to recognize our deep need. It's better for us to recognize and confess our deficiency and allow God's grace to be sufficient and allow the all-sufficient one to take his leadership in our lives. While David was wandering all that time, God, God's eye was on him. God was with him, just waiting for him to turn back to him. And the same holds true here for the church in Laodicea. Do you know that in all of these seven letters that we've read here, Laodicea is the only church that doesn't receive any compliment at all. There is no commendation for the church of Laodicea. God goes right into, or Jesus goes right into, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And if, the, if this passage were to stop at verse 18, we might be thinking, man, Laodicea wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Trouble. But the good news is it doesn't. Continues on. And Jesus says, verse 19, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. Those are such Wonderful words of hope and grace. And just as God was waiting for David to turn back to him, God also was waiting and hoping that this church in Laodicea would turn to him. He says, I'm, I'm just standing at the door knocking. And I'm, I'm going to stay right here knocking, just waiting for you to open this up for me. Maybe that's us. Maybe we need to hear Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. Jesus knocking on the door of our church. That we can, that we can stop with the, with really with the shenanigans, the, the falsity of having a self-sufficient power. We have none. And yet this is such wonderful words of hope. This church that was lukewarm and ineffective, Jesus Christ was saying, Whenever you want, open this door back up to me. I'm going to invite our worship team to, to make it to the stage. In the meanwhile, I'll show you a painting that was made in the mid-1800s. And there you see it's a, it's, it's a depiction of Jesus. Go ahead and come up. It's a depiction of Jesus knocking on the door. And the, the painter, he sort of explained his painting. And you can see that the door has, it has weeds that have grown up in front of it. And he says... Uh, that's because it's been so long since this door has been opened. We've maintained this air of self-sufficiency for too long that weeds have kind of crowded over the door. And then the other thing that he pointed out was that it has no, has no doorknob. It has no latch. This is a door that can only be opened from the inside. Jesus, Jesus isn't going to open it. He's going to knock. The scripture says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody opens it, I'll come in and dine with them. It doesn't say, Behold, I stand at the door with a battering ram. 
and anybody whose door I can crash open, I'm going to ram food down your throat. He doesn't. He's a gentleman, and he's knocking at the door of our hearts today. We're going to sing one last song, and uh, it just, it's just a cry that says, I am not self-sufficient. I recognize that I need what you offer to get me through in my life. Let's stand, we'll sing, and then we'll pray.